listening to BuddhistGeeks.com, January 15th, 2007, Episode 2, Alan Wallace on Achieving Shamatha. In this episode, Vincent Horn interviews Dr. Alan Wallace, a renowned Buddhist scholar, teacher, practitioner, and student of His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama. He is also the author of several books, including his most recent, The Attention Revolution and Contemplative Science. In this podcast, Dr. Wallace shares some of his experience as a practitioner, as well as discuss the practice and development of shamatha. For more information about Dr. Wallace and his work, visit www.alanwallace.org. This is part one of a three-part series. This podcast is sponsored by Amber Starr, producer of Zencast. Since May 2005, Zencast.org has delivered millions of Dharma talks around the world using podcast technology. Through podcasting, they are on track to deliver more Dharma in more places than ever before in the history of the planet. Good afternoon. Hi, Alan. It's Vince. Hello, Vince. You're right on time. So, what can I do for you? Well, I figure we could just jump right in if you want to, to the questions that I had. Yeah, so I was thinking... Starting off, maybe asking a little bit about you and your path, um, specifically your path as a committed meditator. Um, you were a yogi for a long time, and I understand you were a monk for a while and that you studied with the Dalai Lama, and just wanted to hear a little bit about that because it seems like that would be an interesting story. Uh, sure, I'll give you the thumbnail sketch, and that is I was raised in a very religious family, but from very early on wanted to pursue a career in science found a very deep dissonance between these two ways of viewing reality. And with the Vietnam War added on top of that during the late 60s, and by the 1970, by 1970, I pretty well had it with Western civilization. And for the next 14 years, I basically immersed myself in, in Buddhist culture, starting at the University of Göttingen in West Germany, and then moving off to India. I was ordained as a Buddhist monk in 1973 by the by uh, well by one Tibetan Lama and then received full ordination two years later by the Dalai Lama, and so I devoted basically all of the 1970s to studying and practicing Buddhism in India in a, in a monastery in Switzerland, Tibetan monastery in Switzerland, and then spent four years in a series of meditative retreats, and then after 14 years from 1970 to 1983 and end of 1983. Uh, then I decided it was integration time, or uh, trying to a time to begin the process of integration, and so I went back to um, to college, and this time I met- matriculated at Amherst, and wanted to uh, study the paradigm of all the sciences. So I studied physics, spent two and a half years there studying physics, and uh, and then went into retreat for another couple of years, and then went on to pursue a doctorate in religious studies at Stanford, with a strong emphasis on philosophy and cognitive psychology. And I then had two years um, in kind of quasi-retreat, living with my lama outside of Half Moon Bay near San Francisco and doing a lot of translation work. Then taught for four years at the University of California at Santa Barbara in the Department of Religious Studies. Then went back into a six-month retreat out in the high desert in eastern California. And since then, I founded the Santa Barbara Institute for Consciousness Studies. I stopped being a monk in 1987 during a retreat, one of my many retreats in, in the eastern Sierras. Uh, in order to be able to more fully integrate with this modern world, uh, and for which which is not particularly designed with for or compatible with monastic way of life, so that's a thumbnail sketch. Mm. How many months or years would you say that you actually spent uh, formally on retreat practicing, or do you know? Well, in the longer retreats, uh, something like three uh, three years or so. Okay. 
three years and counting. Three years and counting, yeah. Right. And so I guess I wanted to, from there, ask a little bit about the kind of practices that you were doing on those retreats, because I understand a couple of them you devoted entirely to shamatha practice. That's true. Yeah, and then you also just recently wrote a book about that, uh, not about the retreats themselves, but about shamatha practice. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could describe, you lay out shamatha in this sort of 10-stage model that I understand you, you sort of... Uh, borrowed from an older Indian text called the Stages of Meditation? And well, it comes from many sources. Okay. Um, it, it's, it's not just one text. In fact, it's very, very widespread throughout the whole Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Mm. Uh, but I've also received a great deal of uh, oral instruction uh, from lamas from different traditions within Tibetan Buddhism, the Galukpa, the Kagyutnyama, and so on. And so it's kind of a synthesis of a lot of the oral, oral tradition, as well as uh, drawing from texts from classical India, and then a lot of texts from Tibet as well. Um, but over these many years of retreat, including a number of six-week six retreats in the 1970s, um, four-week retreats, and so forth, um, early on I was very drawn, well, I've, I've, I basically haven't abandoned any form of meditation. But I've engaged in, Vaj in Vajrayana retreats, uh, retreats at Vipassana, the Satipatthana, or four applications of mindfulness, a number of shamatha retreats, Vajrayana retreats, um, Dzogchen retreats also, I mean, it's for uh, engaging in this, the practice of Mahamudra Dzogchen, uh, towards understanding the nature of mind, nature of awareness. So it's been a pretty, pretty broad spread, also engaging in the practice of what the Buddhists call the four immeasurables, or divine abidings of loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. So I've tried to follow basically a balanced diet and have dipped into many pools of meditation and not, not being just fixated on just one. Right. In the book I was just mentioning, the, uh, the Attention Revolution, you, so you sort of created the synthesized model, and you also include lots of good information about what you just mentioned, the, uh, the four measurables, and you, you have a couple sections on lucid dreaming that I thought were really great. But particularly, what we're interested in is finding out a little bit about your, your sort of the model that you came up with, and, and I was wondering if you could give just a, a brief uh, overview of what that entails, and, and not just from a sort of objective standpoint, but phenomenologically, what, what's the experience like of going through these, these deepening states of calm and, and vividness of attention? Right. Well, this whole training in samadhi, or another term that's used commonly in Buddhism is shamatha, or in the, in the Pali language, samatha, uh, is really the, uh, a preparation for insight practices, whether the insight practices of Zen, of Mahamudra, or Dzogchen, or Vipassana, for that matter. Uh, the, the, in the overall Buddhist strategy, you first of all try to really balance your mind, refine your attention, uh, bring about a very a very clear and stable sense of equipoise in the mind, and then you use it to probe into the nature of the mind, nature of consciousness, reality as a whole, in terms of contemplative inquiry, which is what Vipassana is all about. And so this shamatha is not instead of the various types of wisdom practices or insight practices that you find throughout various Buddhist traditions, but it's more a preparation for all of them. Uh, and it's, with, it's done with the recognition that the mind that we bring to meditation is already pretty scrambled. And that is, we're all, to varying degrees, suffering from ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And so shamatha is really designed to counteract these habitual imbalances of the mind. Uh, in, in modern parlance, they're called uh, hyperactivity and deficit. In Buddhist parlance, they're called excitation and laxity, which correspond very closely to hyperactivity and, and attention deficit disorder. 
And so when you're following this, this uh, course of training, uh, which again is more like a contemplative technology than it is a contemplative science. That is, you're really preparing your instrument for investigating the nature of the mind and its relationship with reality as a whole. When you start out, the mind has, the, the, the mind is to say the attention, has very little continuity. The attention, the attention span tends to be quite short, uh, even as short as three seconds or sometimes even shorter. And so the first thing is to Number one, start to unwind, and that is this is uh, this is really the initial challenge in such practice is to set the body and mind at ease. Uh, when we engage in many of our daily activities, we do so with a lot of tightness. This is why people get stressed out. We tend to be ambition-driven, ego-driven, goal-driven, and in pursuing our desires, our aspirations, and they tend the, the pursuit itself tends to exhaust us and leave us stressed out and so forth. But if this is where you meditate, then it will just drive you bonkers. And so the first, very first thing is to set your body and mind at ease. And with that, some basis in that, then you begin to cultivate stability. And so at the very first of the nine stages preceding the achievement of shamatha, you're, we're assuming that there's virtually no stability at all, and you're probably pretty tight. And so you set yourself, your body and mind at ease. You, try, you direct your attention to um, the object of meditation you've chosen, whether it's the breath or some other object. And then gradually you enhance, or you kind of keep on, you enhance the stability of attention, which is to say you gradually overcome the coarse excitation of the mind, the inability of the mind to even remain focused on a chosen object. And so this is the major theme of the first four of the nine stages preceding the achievement of shamatha, is to gradually calm this coarse excitation. Uh, it's rather like subduing a bucking bronco that keeps on throwing you off every couple of seconds or so. And so after a while, but when you get to the, four, the second stage out of nine, at least on occasion, you'll be able to sustain your attention for as long as a minute or so. And then you keep on, you just keep on bringing it back, bringing it back, trying to stabilize, to gradually calm the mind of its kind of habitual excitation, turbulence, agitation, until eventually in a 35, 45-minute session, you can actually spend most of the time with your attention on the object, even if it's not very subtle, not highly focused. Nevertheless, you haven't lost, lost it completely. Then by the time you get to the fourth stage, then at this point you may be able to sit for an hour or so, and for that whole whole period, you never completely disengage from the object, at least not on a coarse level. You're really kind of in a groove. You're kind of in the flow of being able to maintain the attention. And as you're progressing along these stages, gradually the amount of effort um, slowly diminishes. So stability increases, but the amount of effort you need to give to sustaining that stability or continuity of attention gradually declines. Then we get to the fourth and fifth stage, this is a point where you're really now starting to um, give a concerted effort to enhancing the clarity, the vividness, the luminosity, and acuity of attention. So that's something of a balancing act there, of not losing the stability you've already gained, but enhancing the clarity so you don't fall into simply a sense of complacency and kind of an ongoing laxity or quiet dullness of the mind. And so in this way, you achieve the fifth stage. And then as you're proceeding along the sixth, seventh, eighth stage, then you're overcoming more and more subtle levels of laxity, more subtle levels of excitation or agitation. The mind is becoming more, more like a laser that is very sharply focused, not necessarily narrow, but it's very sharply focused in a very, again, a more and more ongoing, 
how do you say, flowing continuum of awareness with fewer and fewer interruptions, very brief interruptions, very marginal interruptions of, uh, of attention. And so you get to the ninth stage, and at this point you can be sitting for at least four hours with an awareness that is basically impeccable. That is, there's not, not even the subtlest trace of laxity or excitation. You're really in the groove, and the mind is, and you can maintain that effortlessly. And that's the point at which you're now about to cross a threshold and actually achieve shamatha itself, which is a real discontinuity, that it's not just a little bit better. There's a radical shift in, your, in, the, in the experience energies within your body, which Indians call prana, uh, you feel quite a dramatic shift in the energies in the body. There's a radical shift in the mind, and there's that when you're actually achieving shamatha, there's, there's kind of a rush of physical and mental bliss that arises, kind of an ecstasy that arises, and then it subsides. And then that's when you've achieved shamatha, and your mind settles into a very pleasant state. It's quiet, very peaceful, very pleasant but it's entirely withdrawn from all the five physical senses. And you can remain in that state for at least four hours, but quite probably much longer than that. And you can do so effortlessly. And, and it's, you remain in a, at least on a course level, it's a non-conceptual state. It's rather kind of like a, a luminous vacuity of awareness in which you're wide awake, but it's rather like being deep asleep, but luminously awake at the same time. Um, and then when you emerge from the, from, from the actual experience of shamatha, then there are a lot of lingering effects, or what psychologists call trait effects. And these carry over in between sessions, and that is you find the tendencies of the mind to fall into craving or hostility, impatience, frustration, depression for that matter, anxiety, all of these subside. So you're not enlightened, but the mind is now exceptionally healthy, very, very balanced. And you can sustain a very high degree of coherence, of attentional stability and continuity, as well as an extraordinary degree of vividness and clarity in between sessions as well. So it makes the mind, it, the Buddhists call it serviceable. That is, you can use your mind for whatever you wish with, with extraordinary malleability, with suppleness, with um, a kind of an adroit quality. So whether you want to apply that to deeper forms of meditation, such as Vipassana, or cultivating the heart and the cultivation of loving-kindness, compassion, or whether you want to apply it to other types of endeavors, such as uh, creativity in music, or art, or writing, or problem-solving mathematics, scientific inquiry, uh, or also interpersonal relationships. You have a mind now that is really exceptionally balanced, quite happy, uh, very, very, uh, the, your immune system is very bolstered because of this profound quality of balance and equipoise that you've established with the meditation. So in other words, you've now achieved an exceptional level of sanity, which is the platform then for most effectively engaging in more advanced practices such as Vipassana or Mahamudra, Dzogchen, and various other kind of meditative practices as well. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by c for chaos For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.c4chaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun, 
from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.